Ephesians 2. So there's six chapters in the book of Ephesians, and we're just going to study each one for six weeks, chapter by chapter. And I'm going to attempt to at least read every verse in this chapter, um, but can't expound on every verse or we'd be here until dinner time. And so before we dive in, uh, let me just pray that the Lord would speak to us through his word. God, thank you so much for the scriptures. God, thank you for the book of Ephesians. God, thank you that when we, when we dive into this book, God, you, your heart was to speak to specific people that were living, that were a part of the church of Ephesus. But God, thank you that you would write to them, but also here we are thousands of years later, you still are speaking the same message to us as your people. And so, Lord, we just ask that you would speak to us in our context. Lord, thank you that your truth never changes. Thank you that, that your word never changes. And so, Lord, help us to understand what it is you want to speak to us today through chapter 2. We love you. Pray that in Jesus' name. Amen. So I bet if you've grown up in church for some time, maybe when you were a kid, you just grew up in church, I bet you've heard the word saved before, probably a million times. I got saved, or I was saved at a young age, or when did you get saved, or are you saved, or I don't think they are saved, or they just got saved. I bet you've heard that word lots and lots of times to the point where you probably don't think much about it anymore. There's probably not a whole lot of weight to it. Maybe, maybe there is. But I wonder if you pop the hood of the word and you look underneath the surface, I wonder what is in your heart when you hear that word saved. I wonder what you think. I wonder how you would define that. I wonder... If you think being saved means I go to church, or does being saved mean I'm a good person, or does being saved mean I grew up in a Christian family, I'm saved, or does being saved means when I was a kid, I prayed a prayer, or what? I wonder how you would define it. I know for me, I remember even at a young age and not in church a whole lot, but I would hear the word saved, and I'd be intrigued by it. And I can specifically remember a time in high school where I was shooting basketball in my parents' driveway, and for some reason I was thinking about some friends I had at the time and how they were Christians and they were believers, and they were saying, we are saved. And I remember thinking about it, and as I'm sitting there pondering this thought, pondering this word, I remember I stopped shooting, and I remember staring at my neighbor's fence and going, man, I wish I could be saved. But I remember what followed that was, but God could never accept me. I sin way too much. I'm not a good person. I have so many problems. I know I'm not perfect. I screw up too much. Maybe one day God will accept me. Maybe one day God will save me. And then I remember I went on shooting basketball as a high schooler, 
And just went on about my life. I was inwardly broken, longing for God, not even knowing how badly I needed him to save me. And I had no idea what the gospel truly meant. And so that was my story. I wonder if you relate to that in any way. I wonder if you're here today and you have an incorrect understanding of the gospel. You might even have been in church your whole life and might still have an inaccurate version in your mind of the gospel, even like I did. You might view God as a father waiting for you to get your act together before you can truly be accepted by him. You feel maybe even as a believer, you're striving constantly to keep God on your side because at any moment, your failure or screw-ups is going to turn his back on you and you can't perform enough for him to love you. Again, maybe as a believer, someone that knows Jesus, maybe for some time, you just find yourself in and out of seasons, wrestling and wondering if God truly loves you. Meanwhile, you come to church and it seems like everybody else has it together. Seems like their marriage is good. Their kids are great. Seems like they as a individual are doing great. And here's the sad part. I don't know why this came to my mind, but what happens in that place as you know how broken you are and you're convinced everybody else isn't broken, what happens parallel to that is you start to grow bitter towards them. I don't know if your heart's that way. It's like you see their life good and your life's broken and now there's this weird bitterness that comes against even God's people. I just ask, what is your definition of the word saved? Where is your heart when it comes to this? And I say all that to say because Ephesians 2 has a lot to speak into the word saved. The book of Ephesians was written for the church of Ephesus and the surrounding churches of the area. And what Paul does by the spirit in the first three chapters specifically is he wants to zone in and clarify what the real and true and beautiful and wonderful gospel is. And he just puts it on display for all to see. And so I pray, I've been praying many times this week that we as Christian Life Church, all of the people here would just see the gospel on full display through Ephesians 2. And for those that have an incorrect understanding of what it means to be saved, maybe, maybe today by the Spirit, the Lord would meet you there and allow you to see your thinking's not right. This is the right thinking. This is the word. Amen. Okay, so Ephesians 2. Ephesians 2 could be broke into three sections, and I, I worded it this way. These three sections are broke this way. Verses 1 through 3 answer the question, saved from what? Saved from what? And verses 4 and 5 answer the question, saved by what? And then 6 through 22 answer the question, saved for what? And these three questions are going to guide our talk today. And so starting in Ephesians 1, or Ephesians 2, verse 1. Ready? You ready? Okay, here we go. Verse 1. And you, you is in reference really to all mankind, past, present, and future. You were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, 
following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, like the rest of mankind. So what you see here in these first three verses are some heavy words. And in these three verses, I have it broken, there's six things that you see saved from what? Well, there's six things that you see in these verses. Number one, the first one that we see what we're saved from is death. Death. And you were dead. This word for dead is speaking to the spiritual aspect of humanity. We all know we were born physically alive, but we were born spiritually dead. And apart from Christ, we would be dead spiritually and eventually one day die physically and remain eternally dead, forever separated from God. We were once dead. But because of Jesus, we who are believers, we are saved from death. But for those apart from Christ, though they appear alive physically, though they may do even good things, they're dead. They're dead spiritually, and they need someone to come in and resurrect them to life. I kind of imagine it like a phone. It's like a phone that is dead. It's like when you look at the phone that is dead, this phone's not dead. I know if I hold it up, it's going to come on. It's going to ruin the illustration. But let's pretend this phone is dead. Even though it's dead, can you touch it? Can you see it? Can you physically see it here? Yes. But when a phone is dead, does it cooperate and function the way it was intended and designed to be? No. What needs to happen? It needs to be plugged into a power source to make it alive. So it is with people. We are born physically tangible and alive, but what we need is God to come in and connect us to the original power source, make us alive spiritually and bringing us back to the way we were created to be all along, alive physically and alive spiritually. You were dead as a believer and now you are made alive. That's the first thing. Number two is that we were saved from our trespass, trespasses and sin. Like the scripture says, and you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked. So we were saved from sin. If you want to even get deep and kind of nerdy with me, the Bible as a whole, it categorizes sin into two categories. Sins of commission, sins of omission. A sin of commission basically means it's the sin that you intentionally do. You choose to do wrong. You knew you shouldn't eat that cookie, and you chose to eat it anyways. You knew you shouldn't steal that thing, hit that person, lie, whatever, fill in the blank. But you did it. You knew it was wrong. That is called a sin of commission. But then there's sin of omission. It is failing to do what's right. So if commission is doing what's wrong, omission is not doing what's right. It is passive, just letting things go. And so, all of us have committed sins of commission and omission, and therefore what the scripture says is we have trespassed. The word trespass means, hopefully you may know, it means to cross a line 
a boundary and enter a zone in which you are not supposed to be. And the trespassing that we have done is the line of breaking God's law, breaking God's word, breaking God's heart, and we have therefore trespassed. And therefore, because of that, we are sinners. However, despite the trespass, despite the sin, praise the Lord for those in Christ. We have been saved from those things. And though we may even still go on as Christians and believers, we struggle and we wage war against sin. Praise the Lord that the consequence for the sins that we could commit tomorrow have been paid for on the cross. So that's number two. Number three, I'm trying to be quick. I'm trying to avoid the tangents, but I can't guarantee it. <laughs> number three, we were saved from worldly living. And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world. What this basically means is the world had a, a you've heard the phrase, march to the beat of their own drum. The world had a beat in the drum, and we all were deceived, and we all just marched to the beat of the world and it was a way of culture. It was a way of life. It was a way of thinking. It was a way of viewing our money. It was a way of viewing our kids. It was a way of viewing our future. And we marched to the beat of what the world told us is the right and best way. And however, when Christ entered in, he actually pulled us out of that beat and pulled us to the beat of a new drum called the scripture, called God's heart. And so God has saved us from a life of worldly living. And I would add, if you claim Christ, if you claim to be a Christian, and yet you still find yourself taking pleasure in the ways of the world, I would encourage you, go read 1 John and reevaluate your relationship with Jesus. Perhaps through his word, he'll pull you out of that. But we were saved from a life going in the wrong direction. That's number three. Number four is we were saved from Satan and demons. The verse continues in verse 2, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air. That is just a way of describing Satan in the scripture. He's described as the prince of the power of the air, the spirit at work in the sons of disobedience. And praise the Lord, we have been delivered from that we have been delivered from the kingdom of darkness what have you been saved from you have been saved from satan and demons number five in ephesians 2 we see we have been saved also from our old nature verse 3 says among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh carrying out the desires of the body and the mind so we lived under Satan's bondage, and we also lived under bondage to our sin and our sinful nature. But praise the Lord, when we became a Christian, we received a new nature, not an improved upon nature, not a better version. It's a brand new nature. I think of Psalm 37, 4, where it says, and you hear this a lot. And maybe I can even clarify this verse today. You hear it a lot, the verse that says, delight yourself in the Lord and he'll give you the desires of your heart. It's very easy to read that and go, man, if I love Jesus, he'll give me what I want. 
It's easy to read that like God is a genie waiting to receive your wish and they'll give you what you want. That's not what the verse is saying. What the verse is saying is that if you're delighting in the Lord, if you're loving the Lord, if you're enjoying the Lord, if you're worshiping the Lord, as you get to know him, the Lord literally gives you desire. And so now what you want to do is actually in line with what Jesus wants to do. He will give you the desire to do what is pleasing to him, what worships and glorifies him most. So please hear that. Worship God. Praise his name. Gather with his people. Delight in the Lord. And what happens as a byproduct of that is he actually transforms your heart to align with his heart. So if you find your heart constantly in competition, I don't want to do that. I don't want to serve. I don't want to give. I don't want to praise his name, worship his name, delight in him, and he'll actually transform your heart to align with his. That's number five. Okay, number six. The last one. Number six is we have been saved from the wrath of God. Verse 3 finishes, and we're by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. That does not sound like a fun word that I want to be a part of. Children of wrath. What this is saying is sin must be punished. God is loving, but he's also holy and he's also just. And he cannot be loving and true if he's not also holy and just. God cannot just turn his head to wrongdoing and sin. He has to deal with it. And praise the Lord that in Christ, the punishment was poured out onto Jesus. The wrath of God was poured out on Jesus for those that are in Christ. If you're in Christ, the wrath has been dealt with. And so what we see are six things that we are saved from. We see death. Sin, worldly living, Satan and demons, our old nature, and the wrath of God. And please, if you're a believer in Christ, let that sink in all over again, as if it was the first time you ever heard that news. Don't hear those things and go, hmm, that's cool. Hear that and, oh my gosh, he saved me from that? Are you kidding me? I know me. I know what I've done. I know the way that I am. But yet he would choose to save me from those things. I don't know how we're not erupting in praise. I don't know how we're not going crazy and losing our mind. I don't know how our emotions don't just come out and we look like fools. Man, if you let that sink in all over again, we were saved from death. Sin, worldly living, bondage to Satan, the kingdom of darkness. We are saved from our old nature and the wrath of God is no longer something we will ever experience if we're in Christ. What good news. Amen. And I cannot in good conscience go forward and say, if you're not in Christ, the opposite is true. If you're not truly in Christ, 
in submission to Jesus as Lord. If you're not in a right relationship with God, you are not saved from these things. But I will follow that with, please hear the next two verses. And I pray that the Spirit would open your ears to hear and really believe these verses. Ephesians 2, 4 through 5, they answer the question, saved by what? Verse 4 says, but God. Everybody say, but God. Theologians throughout all of history, they call these two words the diamond of the gospel. Two of the sweetest words in all of scripture is that you were dead. You were rebels. You were violators of the law. You had nothing good going for you. You trespassed. You sinned. But God. But God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead and our trespasses made us alive together with Christ. And hear this, by grace you have been saved. And so the second question is saved by what? We know what we were saved from, but how were we saved? How was salvation made possible? Jesus. <laughs> salvation and freedom and forgiveness have been made available because of Jesus Christ on the cross, dying in your place to pay the penalty of your sin. And he rose from the de dead to declare that it's done, it's finished, and the way has been made, and by grace, all who come to him can be rescued and saved. I know that hearing this is what changed my life. The, the me playing basketball, totally misunderstanding the gospel, a few years later on into college would be in a room and hear the one true gospel for the first time. And my, like, my mind, my head literally felt like it was going to explode. And the choir director, all right, let's all stand to sing. Literally dozens in the room. Stand up and sing. I couldn't even stand. I was in the front row. Everybody saw me. I just, I just booked it out of the room. Went and sat in my friend's car. And I'm like, this is not what I knew. I don't have to have it all together for God to accept me. I don't have to get my life perfect before God would even look at me. That there is a loving father that says, come as you are. I died in your place. I rescued you. I saved you. And now come and let me transform you to look like I intended you to look all along. It's the gospel. It changed my life. And if you're away from Jesus, come to Jesus. Come and rest in his grace. And if you are in Jesus, be reminded. Paul says it all throughout the scripture. I stand in the gospel. I never leave this gospel. I preach this gospel to myself daily. Stand in it. Don't just touch it and leave. And then a few months later, I come back and I touch it and I leave. No, stay in the gospel every day. It's amazing grace. And I, and I want to point out the what's called the great reversal from Ephesians 2, 1 through 3 to 4 through 7. We see this and, and receive this as a blessing to you. We see now, if you are in Christ, you have been saved from death to life, saved from identity of sinner to an identity of saint, saved from worldly living 
to holy living. You've saved from Satan and demons to the Holy Spirit. Saved from old nature to new nature. And hear this, saved from children of wrath to children of God. And all this made possible by Jesus. Is he worthy? Yes, he is. He is. Like we see, he's the Lion of Judah. He's the one that opened the scroll. And that scroll, in case you read that, in case you're one of those that, like me at one time, were singing that song going, what am I singing? A scroll? What that means is God's will personified on a scroll is now made available to you. And now if you are in Christ, there is a mediator that can mediate between the world and God and unite the two together. That is Jesus. He's the lamb that was slain. He is the one that is worthy to unite us to God. Praise the Lord. <laughs> we have 17 more verses to cover. And these last 17 verses speak specifically to save for what? Don't check out on me. 17 verses, but we will be quick. Maybe. I don't know. <laughs> These last verses, in summary, they depict and show us that we were saved for a few things. We are saved for works, worship, and one another. That's my paraphrase. These last several verses say that we were saved for works, worship, and for one another. So verse 6 says that we were raised up with him and seated. He has seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. I want to really talk about what it means to be raised up another day, but I want to tell you about the seated. He has seated us with him. Basically what this means is that in heaven, there is a seat with your name on it. You're not there yet. You're here. You're in this seat. <laughs> But somehow, in this mysterious way, in the heavenly realm, there is a seat. Revelation talks about the marriage supper of the Lamb, where God and his people will dine together and feast together, and, and God will be face to face with his people, the bride and the church, or sorry, the groom and his church, the bride, together. And guess what? Around that table is a seat, and it is only yours to occupy. That's what it means that God has seated us with him in heavenly places. There's a seat in heaven with your name on it. Awesome. And then it continues to say, you've been raised to life, seated with Christ. And verse 7 says, so that in the coming ages, he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. Basically, what that means is if God can forgive someone like you, that is just a testifying work to the Lord. I know for me, when people come and they say, you're a Christian? I knew you in middle school. I knew you in high school. You're a Christian? That is God showing his immeasurable grace to the world that somebody like me can be saved by Jesus. Verse 8, for by grace you have been saved through faith. Paul says it again. And this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of work so that no one can boast. Please hear that. And don't just gloss over that. You can do nothing to be saved by God. Nothing. Absolutely nothing. Zero. 
no amount of good works, no amount of good things. You cannot earn your way back up to the mountain of God. You cannot perform your way into salvation. And Paul is making that clear. No amount of works can save you. It is only by grace that you can be saved. But we keep reading in verse 10. For we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. So what Paul is trying to help us see is that you cannot save yourself. You are not saved by works. However, you were saved to do good works. You were saved for good works. And I would say this is something, this is an aspect that is misunderstood a lot, for maybe particularly in America. I don't know if it's in other countries. But if you were told some version of the gospel that says, come to Jesus, pray this prayer, you're saved, and you can keep on living how you want to live and stay true to you, and that's okay, because God loves you. There are elements in that that are true, but equal to that, there is, there's such misleading deception happening in that kind of gospel. Because the gospel is not come to Jesus, pray a prayer, go to church on Sunday, and live like hell the rest of the week. Bearing no fruit in your life that you actually do truly belong to the vine. That's deception. And if you believed that version of the gospel, can you please submit that to what is being said today? You can do nothing to be saved. But when you do come to Christ, God's heart is that you now bear fruit he has prepared good works for you to do. If you're in him, you will do those good works. And the good works aren't trying to be saved. I'm not doing this hoping God will keep me saved. I'm just doing them because why wouldn't I? Why wouldn't I? We are his workmanship. We are created in Christ for good works. There's so much I could say, but... Please know that God has created good works for you. And these good works, just so you know, if we can get practical, the good works he has prepared for you, they are supposed to take place in your home, in your marriage, in your workplace, in the city that you live in, in the family that you belong to. And they are all good works that glorify God. Some are seen, some are unseen. Some involve generosity, hospitality, even good works like rejecting sin and refusing to compromise, kindness, financial giving, serving others, loving your wife, life, loving your wife well, <laughs> leading your family, sharing the gospel, praying for someone, paying for somebody's meal at lunch, on and on and on and on and on I could go. But we were saved to do these things. And I can't say it any better than this quote by Mark Driscoll, a great Bible teacher. He says, God does not need our works, but our neighbor does. God doesn't need school supplies, but the kid without a dad does. God doesn't need groceries, but the single mom does. God doesn't need us to run an honorable company, but our neighbor does. God doesn't need us to love our neighbor. Our neighbor needs us to love our neighbor. And so the good works are not things that God needs. God can take care of himself. 
These are things that our neighbors need, and it's a way of loving our neighbors and showing the love that Jesus has for us. And we, and we do that not so that God would love us, but because he already has. Not so that we'd come into right relationship with God, but because we already are. Not so that God would be pleased with us, but because in Christ he already is. And it frees us to love and serve people by the grace of God. Yeah. Okay. Couldn't say it any better than that. And so, why were you saved? For what reason? For works. Because in that works, by the way, it is worship to the Lord. When you do good things in Jesus' name, that's worship. That is a sacrifice pleasing to him. And most all of us probably, at least the majority of you, probably when I say good works, you automatically think reaching the lost. And that is 100% true. Please go do that. Might be weird to say, but I don't think we do that enough, if I'm honest. I think we can do more of that. We need to reach the lost. Stop being afraid of the lost. Stop being too shy to engage in conversations when the door is right there. I don't know, but engage with the lost. But in the rest of Ephesians, Paul really wants to drill in that, yes, the lost deserves your good works, but so does God's people. So does the rest of the church. And for time's sake, I won't read it all. But if I can summarize what is happening in verses 11 through 22, Paul is he's really drawing attention to the division in the Jews and the Gentiles. Because the church of Ephesians had some Jews and it had a lot of Gentiles. And what was happening is that the Jews were doing good things to the Jews and the Gentiles were doing good things to the Gentiles, but there was not a whole lot of crossover. And Paul really he drills in to just shout to them, you are all one. Jew and Gentile alike, you are one. There is one. Like I'm not, I don't want to jump ahead, but Ephesians later on, Paul drills. There is one Lord, one baptism, one spirit, one salvation. He's trying to there's unity, one. There's not two. There's not a God of the Gentiles and a God of Jews. It is one and the same. And so a way that we can apply this, and I'll be brief here, is that here in this church, go and read, go and read this later. But we, we may not be wrestling with something like race as far as serving one another, but what I think we might do is we, we gravitate towards those like us, and we kind of, without meaning to, reject those not like us. It's easy if you're young to love other young people. It's easy if you're old to gravitate and hang out with the older crowd. If you're music-minded and worship-minded, you gravitate towards the musicians. If you're prophetic gifted it's easy to congregate with others that are prophetically gifted if you love the homeless you congregate I am in no way diminishing the value of each of those we'll call them sex or people groups or whatever giftings however what I am saying is don't you see all of us together is what represents Christ most 
all of us together, young and old, worship team to the homeless team, to the production, to the kids ministry, to those that love to evangelize, to those that love to disciple, to those that love theology and want to dig into the word and those that just want to go serve, all of us together make up the body of Christ. And it grieves my heart to see, and I see it a lot, not necessarily here, but just everywhere. There's a you versus us kind of mentality. Man, unify. Like Paul shouts, Jews and Gentiles, come in unity. So I say, all of us together, come in unity. I dream of seeing the older serving the younger and the younger serving the older and all of us in unity together advancing the kingdom. Because together, not, not just one of us, but all of us together represent and show Christ to the world. Amen. Yeah. Man. So much in Ephesians 2. But here's how I want to close. I don't want to ask you to stand because I know when you stand, your brain goes out the door. But this is the part where I would ask you to stand, but don't stand. I will have you stand in a minute. Worship team, when we stand, you can come. But just pause for a minute. <laughs> because I, I want to just close with a statement. I want to close giving you a picture. Especially on the topic of being saved. The book of Ephesians, as you continue to read it, Pastor Ron, he even shared it last week. You see the two words, in Christ, in Christ. Everybody say, in Christ. In Christ. You see it. It's everywhere. I mean, you were just, you were made alive in Christ. For you were seated in the heavenly places in Christ. In Christ. It's filled, not just in Ephesians. You, you will now, every time you read a New Testament book, or letter, you are going to see those words in Christ. They'll leap off the page. But what's cool about the New Testament is there are so many different modifications to these words. There are in Christ language, but then you see other language like Christ in you. And so I'm going to, again, I'm going to paint a picture for you. And so if you're a visual person, you probably were wondering why these were here, the whole service. <laughs> I am going to draw a picture of you. I am gifted in many ways, but drawing is not one of them. So this is you. <laughs> this is you. And according to Scripture, again, to paint a language for you, according to Scripture... The Bible actually says lots of times about Christ being in you. And so I had someone else that actually could write in a way that you can read, write this. This is Christ. So according to the scripture, Christ is in you. You read scriptures like Christ in you, the hope of glory. Christ in you. And so this is a picture of you. It's not finished yet, but you have Christ in you. If you are in Christ, if you are a believer, Christ lives in you. But then we read verses like we have been reading all day is we are in Christ. So now 
This is a picture of not only is Christ in you, but you are in Christ. So this is a little bit clear of a picture of you. For the believer, Christ lives in you as you live in Christ. But it's not a completed work yet. Because according to Colossians 3, Colossians 3 says that you have been raised to life in Christ in God. And so now we see God. So not only is Christ in you and you in Christ, but you are also in God. And so this is actually a clear picture of you as you are in Christ. And so, why am I telling you this? I want you to think about it. And this is really what I want you to just leave with. The enemy comes at you in life. It came at the Ephesians. The, the enemy comes at you. Satan comes at you in many different ways. And now think about this. This is a clear picture of you. Christ in you, you in Christ, in God. And so now when Satan comes to attack you, who does he have to come to first? God the Father. And he does not have a good track record with God the Father. He's no match for God the Father. But let's just say, somehow, some way, he jumps past God the Father. Now who does he have to deal with? Christ. He also doesn't have a good track record with Christ either. Because on the cross, Satan thought he won. But three days later, when Christ rose from the dead, he, what that was was Christ stomping the head of the serpent. But let's just say he gets past Christ there. He gets past God the Father. He gets past Christ. Now guess who he has to deal with? Christ in you. We'll say the Spirit of Christ. We'll say the Holy Spirit in you. I hope that this paints a picture of what Paul was trying to shout at, out to the Ephesians and the Lord trying to shout out to you as you. If you're in Christ, you're saved. You're saved. You're secure. You're safe. And when the enemy comes your way, you have Christ in you. You are in Christ in God. You're safe. You're secure. You are saved. But let me paint it in a different perspective. Practically speaking, hear this. No matter what medical diagnosis comes your way. No matter what people in this world do to you. No matter what they say about you. No matter what happens in your job. No matter what happens in your finances. No matter what season you find yourself in. The brokenness that you are in and you had no idea you would find yourself there. I want you to see a picture. You're safe. No matter what comes your way, you have Christ in you as you are in Christ in God. Let this be a picture that you are absolutely secure. And when you're in Jesus, nothing can stand against you. Nothing.
not even death, nothing. <laughs> so now let's stand together. <laughs> I apologize for going a little long. But this is the beauty of Ephesians 2. And again, if you're a visual person like me, I want you to remember. What did he talk about? Oh yeah, I remember the boxes. You're saved. You're saved. And if you are not in Christ, hopefully by now and in this message, there's something in you going, man, I need Jesus. Man, I need to run to that Jesus that he's talking about. Please come to Jesus. If you've been in church your whole life and you really have discovered you don't really have a real relationship with Jesus, come to Jesus because he's worth it and he's so worthy. And so what I want to do is I know that it's long. I just want to pray and then I'll dismiss us. So would you bow your heads with me? Close your eyes. I want to first pray for those that maybe you are in the room and man, you just, you are realizing all over again how desperately you need Jesus. Maybe it's for the first time you're saying, I need Jesus. My friends have been telling me, my parents have been telling me, my grandparents, I've been feeling it and I've been running, but here I am finally here in this place and this guy on the stage, for some reason, my heart is just longing for Jesus. Man. I want to pray for that person. Lord, I pray if those people are in the room, I pray, God, that you would just by grace reveal your love to them. God, that you would just show them the steps to take. God, thank you that they can rest in you, that if they come to you, God, they are safe. They're secure. They might not have all the answers, but Lord, thank you that this is the place they need to be in a local church body together. It's together, Lord, that we know you, that we pursue you, that we grow to know more about you. So, Lord, I pray that you would do a work in their heart and that you give them the boldness to share with somebody. And, Lord, I pray for the church as a whole, every believer. God, I pray that you would help us be refreshed. I pray, Lord, that somehow, some way, we would fall in love with you more than ever. Like it's the first time we've ever heard the gospel. I pray that you would just come to life in us. And no matter what comes our way, according to your word in Ephesians 2, that we were saved by your grace and that we're secure in you. And let this be a picture, these plastic boxes, God, let it burn in our minds that you are in us as we are in you, in God. And Lord, we praise you for that. And let us go from this place resting and secure and also knowing you have good works for us to do. And I pray, Spirit, you would lead us and help us to advance the kingdom of God in this hour that we live. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Come on, can we give God praise together? Awesome. All right. My encouragement, go read Ephesians 2 again. And this week specifically, go read Ephesians 3, because Pastor Ron will teach us chapter 3 next week. Sign up for worship night. You said it yourselves. Register by Friday, because uh, we want to worship together uh, at the worship night. But I love you guys. Praying for you.